listening to audio from Oasis Church in Winter Haven, Florida. For more information about Oasis Church, please visit our website at www.oasischurchwh.org. And thanks so much for listening. I had just turned 18 years old. I was a senior in, uh, in 1990. And in the spring of 1990, my, myself and, and my classmates in our senior class uh, had an opportunity to go on a, uh, a trip to Europe. And our trip uniquely uh, had a stop there in uh, the city of Berlin in western Germany. What was so incredibly unique and spectacular about that trip was that in the spring of 1990, the, uh, the Berlin Wall had already begun to fall. It, it, was, it was no longer in effect as it had been for years and years since the ending of, of World War II. The Iron Curtain, if you will, was beginning to come down and, 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 and democracy and freedom was, was starting to seep in into those Eastern Bloc countries. In fact, I had opportunity to take hammer and chisel and beat a piece of that wall off to bring home as a souvenir, gave, gave one piece to my grandfather who had fought in the, uh, in the Second World War in the European fronts. What a neat opportunity to be a part of something that had, had been one of the world's most uh, identifiable separations coming down and, and peoples who had been separated by concrete and rebar being able to come together again as one nation. Paul's going to talk today about a dividing wall that was broken down by the work of Jesus. And as we looked last week in Ephesians chapter number two, we're, we're in the book of Ephesians, we saw how that he, he gave us a contrast of the way that we were to the way that we are now. The way that we were individually before Christ, he said we were dead dead spiritually in our sin, dead spiritually without life, without hope, without opportunity. But God in Christ, by His grace, made us alive by His grace through faith in the death and resurrection of Jesus. He's made us alive in Him, and and He's given us the opportunity to now walk in a new life into good works that He's prepared beforehand for us to walk in. So he gave us this contrast of what we individually were before Christ and now in Christ. What he's going to do now is move into another contrast where he's going to, he's going to describe us as a group of believers. So it's not just me and you, now it's us. And I would imagine that that us probably is, is everyone watching or most everyone watching. He's going to be speaking to a group of people called the Gentiles. But let's jump into the text and hear what he has to say as we look at Ephesians chapter 2. Starting with verse 11, if you have your Bibles, turn with us. If you have you version, you can follow along there in our live events as well. Here's what Paul says. He says, Therefore, remember that at one time you Gentiles in the flesh called the uncircumcision by what is called the circumcision, which is made in the flesh by hand. That is really confusing phrase right there. And we'll hit what it means in just a second. He says, remember that you Gentiles were at one time alienated, I'm sorry, separated from Christ, alienated from the commonwealth of Israel and strangers to the covenants of promise, 
having no hope and without God in the world. So now he's talking to the Gentiles as a a group of people. So in order to kind of get an understanding of, of what Paul is talking about, we need to explain briefly the nature of the relationship between the Jews, the Israelites, and the Gentiles. If, if you read the book of Genesis, you're going to find that, uh, that God makes a decision, a unilateral decision, to start a new nation. Israel hasn't always existed in this world. But, but God made a decision that out of, out of one man, He was going to create a brand new nation. And so God chose Abraham, not because of any righteousness that Abraham had done, not because of anything that that Abraham was, was doing to pursue God, but just out of God's gracious and sovereign choosing, He chose Abraham out of Mesopotamia, out of a city called Ur. And out of that city, He called a man that He would make a nation. And from Abraham, we have Isaac. From Isaac, we have Jacob. From Jacob, we have the 12 sons that became the 12 tribes of Israel. God established the nation of Israel as a, a group of people who would reflect the, the character of, of the one God. They would be a people who would, who would be the beneficiaries of His blessing, of His contact, of His, of His interaction, so that the onlooking world might see what it looks like for a people to follow the one true God and to, and to walk in, in, in the blessing that He had promised through obedience and, and from uh, just the, the opportunities that He had given them by His choosing. And the nation of Israel would be the vehicle through which God would bring about the one who would restore order to what sin has broken. We know that to be the Messiah, and specifically we know Him to be God the Son, Jesus Christ. So Israel had a purpose in the world. And it wasn't because God loved Israel and hated everybody else the way we think about the word hate. I know that it does say that when God chose Jacob over Esau, Jacob he loved, Esau he hated. But that's not the same way we use the idea of hatred, disdain, get away from me, I hate you. But rather it's this idea of choosing. We've already talked about the very complicated doctrine of election from chapter number one. And it is very complicated to try to understand how that God's sovereign choosing and man's free will coexist and, and, and don't uh, deny one another. And, and we can wrestle about that uh, at another time. But to understand what Paul is saying about these Gentiles and how they seem to be on the outside, we need to understand that God chose Israel or God made Israel in order to be the vehicle to demonstrate God's promises, God's character, and to provide a means by which God's Son would enter into the world. And God created uh, certain protocols, certain uh, regulations that would protect Israel, not because He didn't like the Gentiles as human beings, but because Israel needed to be protected in their worship of the one true God. 
So God had parameters in his law set about through Moses that would keep the uh, Israelites segregated from the Gentiles. They weren't allowed to intermarry. They weren't allowed to enter into business with the Gentiles because God knew if they did, they would begin to follow the pagan gods, the idols that the Gentiles worshipped. And so he was maintaining or attempting to maintain the, the integrity of their worship. Of course, Israel was disobedient on a number of occasions, and they, in fact, did follow after pagan gods and deities. Well, what Israel had done is taken those regulations and had, had decided that God did this because the Gentiles were lesser than they were. The Israelites took God's regulations designed to keep them connected in their worship to Him, and they took that and used it as a means to separate, as a, as a means to disdain, as a means to, in fact, hate the Gentiles. So when the gospel now is being made open to the Gentiles, Paul has to explain how this works, because the Jews simply can't understand what's happening, even those Jews who are coming to faith in Christ, because they were so steeped in their hatred of the Gentiles because they thought God hated them as well, which is not the case at all. So when we get to this section, Paul begins to contrast the way the Gentiles were before Christ. And, and this church in Ephesus was made up primarily of Gentiles. It, it's a, it was the city that was on the, on the westernmost coast of Asia Minor. And, and this was a, a very prominent uh, uh, political and economic center in Asia Minor. This church was made up primarily of Gentiles. But there were a few Jews in the area who were also believers in Christ. And so... Paul is helping them understand how their relationship needs to change. And here's what he does. He says, Gentiles, I, I want to I make sure that you understand the way you were as a group before Christ. And, and here's what he says, verse 11. He says, first of all, you were belittled by the Israelites. I'm sorry to say, but they did. He goes, remember at one time you were called the uncircumcision by who is called the circumcision. Well, circumcision is the sign that God gave Abraham that his promise was sure. And this was a sign that was to extend to all of Abraham's children. And, and in fact, the Israelites were, were uh, circumcised on the eighth day after birth, the males were. And that was a sign that separated them from all of the other peoples surrounding them. But the Israelites had taken that sign and had used it as a way to belittle. And they would refer to the Gentiles as the uncircumcision because they saw themselves as elevated, thinking that they were more important or more loved by God than any of those people on the outside of their national identity. And Paul goes, yep. Before Christ, you were on the outside, you were belittled by the Jews, called the uncircumcision by what is called the circumcision, the Israelites, which, he says, 
is made in the flesh by hands. I'll just tell you this, in the Old Testament, when, when that idea of, of being made by hands and circumcision was something you had to do as a, as a medical procedure with your hands. But I think what Paul is doing here is saying that, that they, were, they were celebrating or they were being identified by what they were doing with their own hands rather than the sign that it was and the purpose that it held for God. And in the Old Testament, when they were doing something with their hands, the idea was that of idolatry. And so Paul's like, yep, they were, they're called the circumcision. They were making fun of y'all. But in fact, the thing they were doing was, was actually more connected to idolatry than it was the worship of their God. So yes, you were on the outside. You were belittled. And not only that, uh, you were, uh, you remember at that time you were separated from Christ. I think not talking about Jesus, so to speak, but Christ meaning Messiah. You were separated. You had no idea that there was a Messiah and, and you were on the outside with no information about, about God wanting to do or planning to do or purposing to do anything through this one called Messiah. You were, you were outside of the loop on this thing. Not only did you not know about Messiah, you were alienated from the commonwealth of Israel. You, you didn't have a place. You didn't have a place at the table. Sure, you were a part of another nation and you might have even relished who you were as a part of that particular nation. But you didn't have a place at the table of God that was being set within the nation of Israel. You were outside of the loop when it come to a place at God's table. He says, not only that, uh, you were strangers, verse 12 continues to say, to the covenants of promise. Those promises that were made to Abraham and David and then through Jeremiah in, uh, in the new covenant, the Abrahamic covenant that promised that, uh, that there would be land and there would be descendants and there would be blessings. For the people of Israel. And then the covenant to David that said there would be a, a descendant of his that would remain on the throne of Israel forever and ever. And then through Jeremiah, the new covenant that said that, that God was going to take his law off of tablets and write it on their heart. Not something that they would obey out of compulsion, but something that he would write on their hearts, making their hearts connected, not the muscle that's beating, but their, but their inner being. He would, he would, he would uh, put on them the, the, the desire to walk with him out of their own heart, out of their own being. Paul says, you guys didn't even know about those things. And even if you knew about them, you didn't care about them. Y'all were so outside of the know. You didn't know anything about Christ. You didn't know anything about the covenants. You didn't have a place. You didn't even want a place at the table of God. And he says, continuing on, having no hope. You didn't know you didn't have hope, but you were without hope everything you were pursuing was going to end up at a dead end. You had no options for, for anything uh, eternal because you were outside of the arena of hope. You were completely unaware. Not only that, you were without God in the world. Now the Ephesians specifically, they, they worshipped a God. Her name was Artemis. And they had the great temple of Ephesus to Artemis there in their city. But Paul says, but you were without connection to the true God. 
And this word without God is actually a Greek word, atheos, which we get our English word, atheist. You were, you were pursuing the worship of things, but you were so far away from God. You were belittled by the folks who should have been pointing you to the person of, of God himself. You were without Messiah. You were without a place. You were without a promise. You were without hope. You were without God. That's a bleak existence. But Paul wants them to understand where they were prior to Christ. Verse number 13. But now, in the same way he says in the earlier verses, but God, while you were dead in your trespasses, while you were dead in your sins, while you were following the course of the world, while you were following the dictates of the enemy, while you were following after the lust of your flesh, but God in Christ has brought you into the family. Here's what he says. You Gentiles were outside the wall. You were segregated and alienated and separated, had no hope, no God. But now, verse 13, but now in Christ, you who once were far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. You once were outside, Gentiles, but now we are all one. Now, this was an important message not only to the Gentiles, but the Jews needed to hear this too. Because the Jews were still having a real hard time with the notion that, that the, the message of the gospel could possibly be for Gentiles as well. They were having a really hard time with this. If, if those of you who have been with us a while will remember back when we studied the book of Galatians. Paul talks about, as he's writing to the churches there in that region, he says, you remember when Peter came and was with us and, and Peter was hanging out with all of us and eating and enjoying fellowship and then when the other Jews came up from Jerusalem, then he separated himself from y'all because he didn't want to be seen with you guys and how that Paul said, man, I got up in his face and told him that was inconsistent with the gospel. The Jews needed to hear this message as well because they were really still having a hard time with Gentiles at the table. God, how can it be possible that you love these people? We thought you hated these people. And Paul's like, that's not the case at all. In fact, he'd been, they were far off, yes, but they've been brought near in Christ Jesus. You once were far off. But now you've been brought near by the blood of Christ, verse 13 says. Verse 14, for he himself is our peace who has made us both one and has broken down in his flesh the dividing wall of hostility. He says you once were on the outside, but now you have peace. Christ himself is our peace who's taking these two hostile peoples the Jews and the Gentiles, and he's making them one out of two. No more separation, no more segregation, no more y'all have to stay out there, no more need to keep the, the nation of Israel as the, as the beacon of God's love. That's Christ now. And now we all come to God through Christ, so there's no need now for us to be segregated we can be one in Christ we have peace 
Christ himself, it says, is our peace. We've been made one out of two. And now we're no longer separated by the hostility of the dividing wall, he says in verse number 14. I think about this this dividing wall like that one in Berlin that came down and making a means by which to cross over where there once was a divider. Now it is gone. I think Paul too may have been thinking when Herod reconstructed the temple in Israel, you know, the, the temple that Solomon had built was, was destroyed when Israel went into captivity to the Babylonians. And they rebuilt a little bit when they, when they came back from, from Babylon after 70 years. They did reconstruct the temple in a meager way. But King Herod had rebuilt the temple in a fantastic fashion. He was trying to, 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 to get the people of Israel to, to like him. And so he thought that was a way to do that. So he had reconstructed, he had remodeled the temple. One of the things that, that had been placed there was a court of the Gentiles. So in Jerusalem, there would be Gentile people who would be interested in the temple. And they would want to know about the temple of God. And the Jews were so... Uh, they, they were so racist when it came to the Gentiles that they had built a little arena where if you were not a Jew, then you could go into this little courtyard, this little, I uh, would we'll say like a little gift shop area that you can come in, but you can't go into the temple because you're not worthy. You're a dog and you're not one of God's people. So there was a wall that separated that court of the Gentiles from the rest of the temple courts where the Jewish people could go in and worship and enjoy that, that, uh, that, that particular place. But the Gentile, Gentiles weren't allowed in. They had to stay outside behind the wall in their little court. And I think Paul is, is thinking about this wall. Of course, the temple is still uh, in, in existence at this time. This letter was written in the, in the uh, early 60s A.D. And the temple didn't get destroyed by Rome until 70 A.D. So it's still there. And I think Paul's probably thinking about that dividing wall where the, where the Gentiles have to stay out. and We can come in because God loves us, but God hates you. And Paul's like... Christ has destroyed that dividing wall of hostility. Christ has brought this thing down in verse 14 in his flesh. Christ kicks down those walls of division and says, No more. I am the means by which all men and women come to God. And no more division. I'm breaking it down through my death and resurrection. He says that he did this, verse 15, by abolishing the law of commandments expressed in ordinances that he might create in himself one new man in the place of two, so making peace. Abolishing the law. We need to understand what he means by that. Paul's not saying that Christ has swept the law away because it was no good. You need to read Romans, uh, specifically chapters number 6, 7, uh, and, and 8, and hear about Paul's thinking on the law. In fact, he says the law is not a bad thing. It just never was intended to save us. The law in its intent was to show us our need of salvation. It was to show us our own sinfulness and inability to maintain holiness before God. 
The law was to show us our sin. It was never meant to save us. But here's what Christ did. Christ fulfilled the law in His life because as we were incapable of maintaining God's holy standard, when Christ came and became flesh, He actually lived in complete holiness. He never sinned and fulfilled the law of God to the T, to the very end. Therefore, being a perfect and sufficient and, and, and able sacrifice to take on our sin and transfer to us His righteousness. So what Paul is saying is, is in Christ, He has abolished, He has nullified, He has rendered ineffective how you Jews have been using the law to separate yourself from the Gentiles. You weren't able to keep it any more than they were, but you were using it as a means to separate yourself as though somehow you were more worthy than they. Christ has brought that down. He's fulfilled the law, the thing you couldn't keep, and He said that was never meant to save. I am. And so therefore, this can no longer separate because all must come through me. He kicks down this dividing wall and he and he renders the law of God ineffective because he's fulfilled it and now we come to him by God's grace through faith for forgiveness and new life verse number 16 and might reconcile us both to God in one body through the cross thereby killing the hostility he says, you've also been reconciled. You once were on the outside. You didn't have a clue. You were segregated and alienated. But now Christ has reconciled you to God by faith. We uh, are, are made right in our relationship. That idea of reconcile is to exchange or to change in the, in the notion of a relationship. We change from being God's enemy. We change from being uh, the rebellious, uh, sinful people that we are to becoming in right re relationship with God, having, our, having our, our relationship changed with Him through Christ's work. And we're reconciled to God. He said not only that, we're, He's reconciled us both to God in one body, thereby killing the hostility. He's reconciled us to God. He's changed our relationship with God and He's changed our relationship to each other. I think about a daddy who, who comes into his, his boys or, or his kids that are fighting and he says, you're going to stop that because you're family. And we're not going to have this. Get, hug him. Hug her. Tell her you're sorry. Why? Because that's not the way we're to operate as a family. And I think that's what Paul is saying here. Jesus has reconciled us to God and he's reconciled us to one another. And he says, all right, now y'all quit fighting. Because it ain't about us and them anymore. It's about us together as one. Verse number 18. For through him... We both have access in one spirit to the Father. You, you once were alienated, Gentiles, but now you have the same access to the Father that the Jewish people do, and it's through the Spirit. 
Now think about what Jesus said to the woman at the well in, uh, I believe it's John chapter 7, where, where she comes and, and, and Jesus is having this conversation with a Samaritan woman, which was bizarre to her anyway, because Jews didn't talk to, to Samaritans, and certainly a rabbi wouldn't talk to a Samaritan woman. I mean, this was just a bizarre scene. And she's arguing with Jesus about where people are supposed to worship, whether in Jerusalem or Mount Gerizim, where, where the, the Samaritans worship and she was trying to have this theological debate and Jesus said look a time is coming and has now come where true worshipers will worship in spirit and in truth Jesus was saying look y'all have missed the you've missed the boat entirely those places those aren't the important things it's about the spirit that is coming that will be the common denominator of true worshipers They'll worship in spirit and in truth. That's the spirit that Paul is talking about here. He says that, uh, that, that we have access to the Father by the spirit that indwells us. He's going to say in chapter 4, verses 4 through 6, that there's one body, one spirit, one hope, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God, one people. This bringing together through the means of, of one spirit we have access to the Father. These Jews, they think they have access to the Father because of what their last name is or how they can trace their lineage back to Abraham. But that's not what gets them an audience with the Father. It comes through faith in Messiah, whose name is Jesus and the Spirit that comes to them as a result of that faith. And so Paul says, you were once on the outside, but now you've been brought in. We're one body. We all have access to the same Father. Verse 19 and 20. So then you're no longer strangers and aliens, but you're fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone. You once didn't have a place, but now you are a place. You once were outside of the family, but now you're in the family and you're being built together with everyone who shares faith in Christ as a as a a dwelling as a household of God built on the foundation of the apostles and the prophets of which Jesus Christ himself is the foundational cornerstone carrying the weight you once were outside but now you've been brought in together y'all hear this you guys hear this too stop separating yourselves from them because now we're one body in Christ, one family, one citizenship. That may be a, a complicated idea for you things. You're like, wait a minute, I'm a citizen of America. I'm a, I'm a citizen of England. I'm a citizen of Canada. He's not talking about earthly citizenships. He's talking about who we truly belong to. We may pledge allegiance to whatever flag of whatever nation that we might live in as, as humans on this earth. But as followers of Jesus, we're told that our true citizenship, where we truly belong, is with Christ. And ultimately, in His return, we're not going to be His American children or His Russian children or His uh, Indian children or His African children. We're going to be His people because our citizenship is with Him. These are only temporary, but that one is eternal. For these people, you're not Ephesians anymore. 
You may live there, you may operate there, you may pay taxes there, but now you're a part of the one body in Christ. One citizenship, one family. In whom, verse 21, in whom the whole structure being joined together grows into a holy temple in the Lord. In Him you are also being built together into a dwelling place for God by the Spirit. We're being built into a holy temple. Not the one that has brick and mortar and gold and fancy curtains. No, we're being built as a spiritual temple. A dwelling place where God operates and moves and and fulfills His purpose through us. Jew, Gentile, male, female, American, Mexican, Canadian, Russian, English. We're all being built into one dwelling place for Him. Now, this is a, a concept that we might think, well, what does that have to do with us today in 2020? I mean, we're, we're, the, we're the melting pot, for crying out loud, in America. Are we? A couple of questions that I want to ask just by means of, of application. I just want you to think about these. Question number one, who's on the outside of the walls that we've built in the church? I don't mean the physical walls of the building, but who's on the outside of the walls we've built? The separation, segregation, you stay out there, we don't want you in here types of walls. I think about historically folks that have been on the outside or have felt as though they were on the outside where the church is concerned. In our history, just as Americans, I think about women have felt on the outside. Welcome in a certain court, but not truly welcome. What about other races and ethnicities? Have they come in our churches and felt they were on the outside of the wall? That there was some reason why they did not belong? What about subgroups? Those that are younger, those that are older, we feel intimidated by people. We, we, we don't understand their age demographic. And so therefore we, we build walls that, that say we love you, but you really aren't going to want to be a part of us because we don't really want you to be a part of us. What about the folks on the outside who look different? That could be a host of different ways. Have we built walls? Are there people out there that say, yeah, they don't really want me there? What about people who think different? You know, it's okay to to have differing opinions theologically. Those things need need to be rigorously debated. But there are a lot of things that should never divide us. And if we're truly followers of Jesus by faith, the crucified and risen one, We should never build walls that would separate us from those that we might vehemently disagree with. I think about people who struggle with certain taboo sins. 
Have we separated ourselves from them? Now, before you, before you completely misunderstand what I'm saying, I'm not talking about inviting sin into the body. You think about kids in the neighborhood. And, 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 and I don't want to tell a kid he can't come into my house. If there are four or five that are playing and they all want to come in and play a game, I don't want to say, you've got to stay outside. But if he's got a snake in his hand, I'm going to tell him, you can't come inside with that snake. You got to leave that snake out there. You know, you can come here. He still might enjoy playing with snakes. You just can't play with the snake in my house. But to separate them out because they enjoy playing with snakes. Well, that would just be uh, segregation. And, and I wonder how many struggle with certain taboo sins that we've said you're not allowed. Maybe we're not willing to say that out loud, but we have built walls that uh, have communicated that you're not welcome here. Yeah, yeah, we get you're a follower of Jesus, but that can't be true because you struggle in this area. I wonder who's on the outside of the walls that we've built. Who's on the outside of the walls that you've built in your heart? Question number two. Will you be a wall builder or will you be a body builder? Now, in our context, bodybuilding is going to the gym, working out, uh, developing muscles so that you can stand on a stage in very little clothing and flex while oiled up with uh, Pam uh, nonstick spray. That's not what I mean. I mean, are you going to be someone who builds walls that separate? Or will you be someone who builds the body that's united together? And embraces and celebrates all that God has brought to himself, even though they may look different, think different, have a different skin color, have a different cultural background, and might struggle with sins that I have never considered a struggle in my life, though I too struggle with sin as well. Will you be a wall builder? Christ has broken them all down, and as soon as you get them up, He's going to tear them down because He'll not tolerate separation and segregation. But what He will do is build us together as one dwelling. We are one, Oasis Church. We're one here, and we're one out there. I say, let's celebrate what God is building and be willing participants and the things that He is doing for His glory. And let that be our passion, to build the body together for His glory. Let me pray for you. Father, we thank You for the day. We thank You for Your love. We thank You for Your Word. I thank You for, uh, for the opportunity that we have even to be online together. I ask that you would encourage us in these weeks as we, as we begin to, to struggle with how to reopen and when and what that will look like. God, give us wisdom. Give us insight. Help us to make wise decisions so that, uh, that, they will, uh, that we will be able to be effective in our ministry that you've planted us to here in this community. Father, I pray for those that are sick and are hurting right now. I just want to ask that, God, you would be with both the Macholi family as they, as they sit by uh, their grandmother, as they, as they walk with her through the valley of the shadow. 
I ask that you would strengthen them and encourage them. I pray for the Carson family. I pray for Jim right now in the hospital in Tampa. And God, I ask that you would touch his body, that you would restore him, allow him to uh, be able to get over this particular wave of, of symptoms so that he can come home and be strong and be with his family. God, we ask that you would do a mighty work. And there are others that we just ask that you would uh, do a, 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 just do a work in their life. We don't even know what they need, but you do. And we just ask that you would demonstrate yourself faithful, that you would make your presence ever known. God, we thank you for the chance that we have to sit before your word. We ask that you will conform us to yourself. May your word be that that guides us into the path you've set out before us. For it's in Jesus' name I pray. And everybody said, Amen. Sins they are many, His mercy.